This is Company Cars, the podcast that tries to make sense of the car business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Company Cars. This week, we're going to revisit automotive history in light of some non-automotive events this past week. So we'll be delaying the introduction of a multi-episode series about hydrogen cars and a multi-episode series about electric cars. We'll come back to both of these multi-episode series, but this week we're going to continue our mergers and acquisitions theme of the past several episodes and explore the 2008-2009 failed hostile takeover attempt of Volkswagen Group by Porsche and the resulting short squeeze that resulted from this attempt. First of all, this isn't a finance podcast, and so even though we'll be discussing some finance-related topics, nothing said on this show should be construed as financial advice. If you're thinking about playing the stock market or engaging in a financial transaction, you should consult your own professional, finance, legal, and accounting advisors before engaging in said transaction. That said, this topic seems very timely in light of what's going on in the stock markets today with all of the retail interest in GameStop, AMC Entertainment, and a few other stocks. We'll talk briefly on this episode about the idea of a short squeeze, some history about Volkswagen, Porsche, and the families that control the two automakers, and we'll also talk about how the two automakers have always worked closely together and where things stood between the two of them just before things really take off. Then we'll talk in detail about what happened throughout 2008 and 2009, and the aftermath with its surprising conclusion, and where these automakers and individuals are today. This week, we have a listener question about electric vehicles, and we'll talk about that too after we finish discussing the Volkswagen-Porsche saga. Before we dive in, I do want to point out that the Volkswagen-Porsche saga of 2008-2009 is pretty well documented on the internet by several publications and websites. I'll share links to some of these resources in the episode description for this episode, but just know that there's lots of really good detail about what happened. So to kick us off, what is a short squeeze? Everybody's been talking about what this is over the past couple weeks with GameStop and a few other stocks in the market. And to step back for a second, in stock markets, people buy and sell stocks. And markets generally allow participants to short a stock, which is to sell shares that you don't actually own. And how this happens is if you think the stock price for a company will go down, you can borrow the shares you need from a broker, and your broker will charge you a small fee to borrow these shares. So you you pay the small fee, you borrow the shares, and you go ahead and sell them, and you take the cash today. So after a fixed time period, like a month, you have to buy the shares back and put them back in place from the person you borrowed them from, which the broker helped arrange. You can also sometimes pay an additional fee to continue and extend your loan for another month or something. How you make money as a trader when you're selling share short is that the money you receive from selling the borrowed shares today is more than the fee you have to pay the broker plus the cost of the new shares you buy later to return to the original owner. So let's say we have a stock that's selling for $20 today. If I think it's going to sell for $10 in a month, I can short the stock and sell the stock for $20 today and maybe pay the broker a $1 fee. And then in a month, I can buy the stock back for $10 and return the stock to the people I borrowed it from. So I received $20 for something that I only paid $10 for, plus I paid the $1 broker's fee, so I make $9. And that's kind of how the mechanics of short selling works. 
The other part of this equation is the squeeze. A short squeeze takes place when the price of the stock suddenly jumps, which causes massive losses on paper for anybody who has previously sold short the stock. And when the price jumps too high, some short sellers might start buying shares anyway to limit their losses because they're worried the stock price will jump even higher. But then what happens is when these short sellers decide to cut their losses and buy shares, if they're large enough buyers or they had large enough short positions, this is enough to push the price of shares even higher, which then loops in other short sellers to want to cut their losses as well. And this kind of unravels from there as the price jumps higher and higher and more and more short sellers are forced or enticed to close their positions. And the squeeze happens when a large number of short sellers all try to close their positions at the same time, which sends the price skyrocketing because now demand for shares has exceeded supply. And so the price keeps jumping and jumping until there's enough supply to meet the demand from the short sellers. One key element here for a short squeeze is there has to be a restricted supply of stock. And this restricted supply is what scares the short sellers into wanting to cover their positions at any price, causing the spike in the stock. In the Volkswagen case, what happened is the short sellers weren't aware that one shareholder, Porsche, controlled a vast majority of the shares outstanding, and Porsche wasn't going to sell, and that severely restricted the supply of shares that could be used to cover the short seller's bets. In the case of GameStop, which is slightly different, what's happening is you're seeing this organized effort by people on Reddit to try to keep people from selling and to try to take shares out of the potential market that would sell their shares to these short sellers to cover their positions. Okay, enough financial talk. So let's get back to the automotive business here. So we'll start by looking at some of the history behind Volkswagen, Porsche, and the families that control both automakers. So Volkswagen and Porsche have always worked together closely as automakers. Porsche traces its origins to Ferdinand Porsche, who was an automotive design consultant and had his own design consulting firm in 1931. Ferdinand Porsche was retained by Adolf Hitler to design this people's car for Germany, and the design that he came up with was later called the Volkswagen Beetle. But because Ferdinand Porsche was not in the business of manufacturing cars, Adolf Hitler and the German regime had to find a different manufacturer for the car, and so they chose Volkswagen. Porsche became an automaker later, when Ferdinand Porsche's son, Ferry Porsche, decided to get into the car business after not seeing any cars on the market that he liked. So he decided to build the Porsche 356 sports car in 1948 and later launched the Porsche 911 in 1963. And Ferry Porsche's family has two last names because half of the family has been married to another family. And so the Porsche Piesch families became very intimately involved in running the family business, so the Porsche sports car company. But as Porsche grew and became profitable and had all these different things going on, Ferry Porsche decided the company was getting too large to be a family business. So he reclassified the company to a corporation and figured that he should hire professional managers to run the business instead of handing different pieces of it to different members of the family. So he instituted this new rule at Porsche that said, no members of the family can work at the company day to day, but will stay sitting on the supervisory board to keep an eye on things. And we'll all get to vote 
in poor stock. So we'll all still have control over what the company does, but we're going to hand over the day-to-day operations of the company to professionals. Ferry Porsche's decision, though, was bad news for Ferdinand Piesch, who was Ferry Porsche's nephew and worked at Porsche in engineering, having been closely involved with the development of the original 911. So after Ferry Porsche's reorganization and new rule that no family members could work at the company, Ferdinand Piesch was out of a job. So he took a job at Audi, and he helped develop Audi into a luxury car company, and he helped develop the famous Audi Quattro rally car. Meanwhile, he still owned his 10% stake in Porsche as a member of the Porsche Piesch family, but he wasn't allowed to work there. So after a very successful career at Audi, his career took him to Volkswagen Group, which was Audi's parent company. And around 1993, he joined Volkswagen Group when it was struggling and on the verge of bankruptcy. And similar to a few other CEOs we've talked about on this show, he executed a remarkable turnaround during the 1990s and oversaw the launch of the new Beetle. He was able to move Volkswagen and Audi further upmarket, and he expanded the Volkswagen Group empire by purchasing Lamborghini and Bentley, relaunching the Bugatti hypercar brand, and expanding the commercial vehicles empire of Volkswagen. So he had a good time at Volkswagen Group, and he was a very successful CEO uh, for the broader Volkswagen Group brand. And so throughout his career at Volkswagen, Ferdinand Piesch had developed this reputation as an extreme micromanager, being intimately involved in individual products and their development, even though he was the CEO. So he was generally thought to be a genius in terms of automotive development, since he was involved with some automotive legends like the Porsche 911, the Audi Quattro rally car, and the Volkswagen New Beetle. But he was also known for having this dictatorial managerial method and setting these extremely lofty goals that nobody wanted to tell him were impossible. And so part of his legacy was creating a culture that led to the Dieselgate emission scandal because he had set these very ambitious targets for diesel emissions and his engineering team just couldn't meet it, so they chose to cheat. So Ferdinand Piesch's career at Volkswagen and Audi even though it's filled with lots of successes and lots of iconic products that have fundamentally changed the automotive business, are also filled with some darker elements like Dieselgate and a few failed product launches along the way. In addition, Ferdinand Piesch had a very colorful home life. So as a Porsche Piesch family member, he had been gifted a 10% stake in Porsche. But He caused some drama within the family because while he was married, he had an affair with Marlene Porsche, which was his wife's cousin, and he wound up having two kids with Marlene Porsche and lived with her for 12 years before he left Marlene for their nanny. Meanwhile, Porsche during Ferdinand Piesch's career was being run by outsiders, as originally prescribed by Ferry Porsche. And so... Porsche, as a purveyor of high-end sports cars, had always had very high highs and very low lows throughout its history. So the company struggled and churned through senior executives throughout the 1970s and 1980s, finally confessing that they needed some help to reset things. So in the early 1990s, Porsche hired some consultants that had previously been affiliated with Toyota to show them how to produce things more efficiently. And allegedly, when the Japanese visitors and consultants showed up, They were just completely horrified at how Porsche was manufacturing cars. So throughout all this, Porsche had continued 
its collaboration with Volkswagen. So the two automakers collaborated on many projects over the years, including the Porsche 914 sports car, the Porsche 924 sports car, and the Porsche 944 sports car. So during the early 1990s, Porsche was so desperate for cash and so broke that they agreed to manufacture sedans on behalf of Mercedes-Benz, who was headquartered just down the street in Stuttgart. These cars, which were called the Mercedes-Benz 500E and later the E500, are now collectible because Porsche hand-built parts of each car and Mercedes-Benz hand-built the other portion. And because the cars were too wide, they had to be transported around Stuttgart to different factories to complete different parts. But Porsche was just grateful for the business and they were just grateful that their much larger and more successful crosstown rival Mercedes-Benz was willing to work with them and throw them a bone, so to speak. So at around the same time, Porsche was led by a young manager named Wendelin Weidking, who took the helm in 1993 when things were pretty terrible at Porsche. So keep in mind, 1993 was the same year that Ferdinand Piëch became head of Volkswagen. So Wendelin came in and he set about streamlining the company's manufacturing processes and trying to turn the company around. So he cleaned up the company, made their production processes more efficient, he reorganized, and most importantly, he led development of the next generation of sports cars at Porsche, which had to be engineered and designed together because Porsche only had the money to do one engineering project, but Wendelin wanted to produce two products. And this gave us the first Boxster and a redesigned 911, which is often referred to as the 996-911. So Wendelin led development of both of these sports cars, and the 1990s dot-com boom happened just as these two cars were entering the market in 1998. And so Porsche was in a great place with two brand new sports cars and lots of buyers flush with cash from making money investing in stocks like AOL. And so as this boom went on, this created some very positive momentum for Porsche. And the 2000s were also very, very kind to Porsche. So the company now flush with cash from these two brand new sports cars. They developed a new sport utility vehicle in collaboration with Volkswagen and Audi, which was called the Cayenne. And the Cayenne sold remarkably well too. So now we have three products that are all making good money and the company was profitable again, posting some of the strongest profit margins in the business. Meanwhile, after the launch of the new Beetle, Volkswagen struggled a bit during the 2000s. So the 2000s were kind of rough for VW because they missed the first wave of consumers shifting to SUVs. So Volkswagen first launched an SUV that was too expensive called the Touareg, which is actually related to the Porsche Cayenne. And then Volkswagen launched an SUV that was both too small and too expensive called the Tiguan. So in essence, they were they kind of missed the mark on SUVs. And so the 2000s were kind of a malaise decade at VW, and they spent the decade kind of planning a new strategy for the 2010s. Porsche, though, was on a roll. And with the cash coming in on the Cayenne, the Boxster, and the 911, the team at Porsche started looking around for their next big project. So they had already started work on a new full-size luxury sedan called the Panamera, and they had worked closely with Volkswagen for both the Cayenne and the Panamera. So they wanted to pursue something even grander than the Panamera. And they had plenty of cash sitting around. Banks were lining up to lend money to Porsche. The 2000s were great. 
uh, Porsche knew that it couldn't depend on sports cars for profits, that the market was shifting to SUVs, and that new regulatory standards for emissions would force them to diversify their portfolio a little bit. And they knew that sticking with sports cars just meant a really volatile business, like what happened to them during the 1970s, 80s, and early 1990s. So the brand was going to have to grow into new product areas and new businesses to survive. But both of their new products in new areas were shared with Volkswagen. And so they're running this risk where if Volkswagen were to somehow be taken over by somebody else, then they might lose access to the resources they need to develop the Cayenne, the Panamera, and other cars. So Wendell and White King made a decision. He wanted to secure the future of Porsche and make sure the company still had access to reasonably affordable methods of expanding the brand, like how they partnered with VW on the Cayenne and the Panamera, which neither car Porsche could have developed on their own. And since VW was struggling through the 2000s and was considered a pretty bad investment on Wall Street, Volkswagen stock was pretty cheap. So Wendell and White King started buying up shares in VW. So he bought 20% for the company in 2005 and slowly built the stake over time to 35% ownership in Volkswagen in September 2008, which is where the action really starts. And now it's time for a short break. We'll hear from our sponsors and we'll share some information about how to submit a listener question. The Company Cars Podcast is sponsored by Rejected Conjectures Incorporated, a division of integrated derivatives. If you have a question that you want answered on the show, write us an email at companycarspodcast at gmail.com. So before we get to the really spicy parts of what happens, it's also important to remember that in German capital markets, companies will often trade two categories of stock, voting stock and non-voting stock. Although both types of stock give investors access to the same cash flows, only the voting stock can be involved in running the business. So in this case, if Porsche was going to take over Volkswagen, Porsche needed the voting stock. And over time, that's what they focused their buying efforts on. So with their aggressive buying activity, this started to create this price gap between the voting shares and the non-voting shares that was increasingly getting large throughout 2008. So as the price of the two categories of Volkswagen stock diverged, some hedge funds took a look at this and noticed that, hey, in theory, both categories of stock are entitled to the same cash flows, and they both should represent investors' opinions about the future. So if the prices are too far apart, you can short sell the overpriced version of the stock and buy the underpriced version, and eventually when the two share prices converge, you'll make money, right? So when the overpriced version comes down in price, and the underpriced version comes up, you'll make money on both sides of the transaction there. So when looking at the historical share prices of Volkswagen's two categories of stock, you can see that the price gap is widening between the voting and the non-voting stock all through 2007 and 2008, up to at one point the voting stock was worth almost three times as much as the non-voting stock. So the Non-voting stock was trading about 
90 euros a share and the voting stock was trading almost 270 280 euros a share at this point and so it seemed like it was really strange because this gap was getting larger and larger and larger and so these hedge funds felt it was a riskless way to make money because the two categories of shares eventually have to converge the economics of the stock are the same. So there's no way that those preferential voting rights were worth 3x the value of the non-voting stock. But the two categories didn't converge. So all through 2008, as the global financial crisis deepened in September and October 2008, the price gap continued to widen. And so these hedge funds, they thought it was free money. So they doubled up on their bets and they short sold the voting stock and bought the non-voting stock. So at the end of October, the voting shares dropped slightly in price uh, on October 20th. And so it came down a little bit. And so the uh, it fell from about 275 euros a share to 210 euros a share. So people felt like this this crazy phenomenon was finally coming to an end here and the shorts would get to profit their money. So then what happened is on October 20th, seeing this slight dip in the price of the voting stock, these hedge funds noticed that this was happening and figured the end must be near. So if we want this free money, we need to go completely crazy. And these hedge funds would triple up on their bets because this was a sure bet and the price of the voting stock is about to come down really shortly. And this thinking was reinforced by the fact that through the week of October 20th through October 24th, the price was pretty stable. It had kind of stabilized in the 210-ish range for the voting stock. And so these, these hedge funds were thinking, okay, this is kind of like the pause before the big correction. And on October 24th, I believe that the voting stock closed at about 206, 207 euros. So it's October 24th, 2008, and the stock price of Volkswagen's voting shares has stabilized around 200 euros a share. All the hedge fund managers are convinced that this is about to converge, and this price is about to come down dramatically for the voting shares to match the non-voting shares. And so they've all doubled up and tripled up their bets. They're going to make a killing. It's the financial crisis. There's not that many sure bets, but this is one of them. And so they leave for the weekend. And then on October 26, 2008, so the Sunday after, Porsche launches this grenade into every hedge fund manager's inboxes because they issued a press release announcing that they owned 43% of Volkswagen and controlled another 31% of the company through stock options that they planned to exercise and convert to shares. So altogether, Porsche controlled 74% of the voting shares of Volkswagen, and they had amassed this stake very quietly throughout the depths of the financial crisis, with no one realizing they had bought all these shares. The other issue here is Volkswagen is partially state-owned by the German state of Lower Saxony, who controls 20% of Volkswagen and would never sell their shares. So the hedge funds realized that between Porsche's 74% that they never planned to sell and Lower Saxony's 20% that they never planned to sell, only 6% of the voting shares outstanding would be available to cover short positions. But the hedge funds had collectively shorted 12% of these shares. 
And so it was going to be impossible for everybody to cover their short positions in a timely fashion. And boom, this is where the squeeze happened. So on Monday morning, the hedge funds started running for the exits and started buying up VW voting shares to try to close their position. And the price of Volkswagen's voting shares skyrocketed. So what happened here is at one point, the voting shares were worth so much that it made Volkswagen the most valuable company in the world. So at one point, the voting shares hit a high of a thousand euros a share, which gave Volkswagen a market capitalization of 420 billion, which made it larger than ExxonMobil, PetroChina, or Microsoft. And so, of course, this doesn't happen all at once. So when people came in on Monday morning, the shares opened up at 348 euros and they kept going up. And so they eventually closed at 517 euros at the end of Monday. And then they eventually hit almost a thousand euros on Tuesday. So it was crazy because everybody was heading for the exits and neither Lower Saxony nor Porsche were selling their shares. So the hedge fund guys were in a bind. On Tuesday, October 28th, Volkswagen's voting stock closed at 940 euros a share, which was a record high. And Porsche, seeing kind of the volatility that they'd contributed to, came out with this announcement on Wednesday saying that they would sell 5% of the shares outstanding to meet the short seller's obligations and help out the squeeze a little bit. So this helped, and the price eventually came back down to about 500 euros a share by the end of Friday and settled back down into the 200 range in December. So the short squeeze happened over a relatively short amount of time, but it really only resolved itself because Porsche decided to sell some of its shares so the short sellers can meet their obligations. And of course, Porsche made a ton of money on the sale of these shares because it paid way less than 500 euros or 600 euros for these shares. So what happens next now that the squeeze is over? So this is where the drama really sets in for Porsche. And after the squeeze is squoze, as some people might say, Porsche started running into financial difficulties pretty quickly. So Porsche had borrowed a lot of money from the banks. So they had borrowed 15 billion euros from a huge variety of banks to keep buying up Volkswagen shares. But as 2008 and 2009 progressed, people weren't buying cars, much less the luxury cars that Porsche sold. So Porsche sales began cratering, and they weren't getting the cash that they expected to get from their operations, and suddenly the banks didn't want to lend to Porsche anymore. So in 2009, Porsche was unable to borrow the cash that it needed to convert its options, and Porsche didn't have enough cash on hand to meet its interest obligations. So after a couple really high-risk loans that Porsche arranged to kind of get through each quarter in 2009, in the end... Porsche had to get a bailout from a company called Volkswagen. Yes, the company that they had hunted was now going to be the one that bailed them out. And so Volkswagen agreed to a bridge loan in concert with the Qatar Investment Fund in exchange for, um, as terms of the bailout, Ferdinand Piëch and Volkswagen knew they had Porsche in a corner. And remember, Ferdinand Piëch had been kicked out of Porsche many years ago, and it was a personal goal for him to be able to return to Porsche. So Ferdinand Piëch and Volkswagen asked that as part of their bailout, they're allowed to acquire Porsche. 
and Wendelin Wideking would have to leave the company with his automotive career terminated. And in exchange for that, Porsche would get the bailout money, the Porsche Piesch families would get to keep their shares, but only in a holding company that owned about half of Volkswagen Group and that would be responsible for paying back all the debt Porsche had taken on to try and take over Volkswagen. And so Porsche was desperate, but it was a sudden reversal of fortunes here where suddenly the hunted became the prey and Ferdinand Piesch and Volkswagen saw an opportunity to add this crown jewel brand to its portfolio. And for Ferdinand Piesch, it was almost personal in some ways because he was such a big car guy and instrumental in the early years of Porsche to not have the opportunity to run Porsche or to control the company, I think really left this hole in his heart. And so when the company was taken over by Volkswagen Group, Ferdinand Piesch was ecstatic that the combined Volkswagen Group now would have Porsche reporting up to him. And so he was the boss. And this was just very poetic for somebody who had been forced out by his uncle back in the 1970s. And so in addition, Ferdinand Piesch, as a 10% shareholder of Porsche, made a ton of money on the transaction and in later years too, because he could convert it to more Volkswagen stock. And today, Volkswagen continues to be the parent company of Porsche, and they work closely together. And Porsche is now part of this very large conglomerate. And in the end, this is probably good for Porsche. So they were a relatively small automaker before they were consumed. And they can use Volkswagen Group's resources now, and they've been able to use it to expand their lineup into new products, like a compact SUV called the Macan that shares a lot of its design with the Audi Q5. Um, Porsche's newest Panamera shares a lot of its design with Bentley products. And the new all-electric Porsche Taycan shares its platform with the Audi e-tron. So Porsche has been able to really leverage the resources of Volkswagen Group to expand its lineup and to ensure its survival in a world where emissions and safety requirements are making it much more harder to be a pure sports car company. So this was a very strange case of the hunted becoming the prey here, but Porsche is probably better off in the long run as a division of Volkswagen than as an independent automaker. Now it's time for listener questions. This week, our listener question is about electric vehicles, and we'll do a more in-depth series of episodes about the the economics of electric vehicles, but I did want to provide a short answer to a question that'll result in a two-part series later. So Colin from Fairfax, Virginia writes, do you think EV unit sales will grow to dominate the U.S. market share in the next 10 to 15 years? What do you think explains Tesla's dominance of the EV market and why other companies still seem to be one to three years behind them? So the short answer to the first question is yes. The transition to EVs is happening regardless because regulatory constraints around the world mean that automakers have to go predominantly EV to meet increasingly tight emissions requirements. So the writing is kind of on the wall for the internal combustion engine. And I think in terms of mainstream automobiles, it'll be predominantly EV within 15 to 20 years for sure. Um, It probably won't go to 100% of sales within 10 years, but it'll definitely be much higher than the current kind of two, three, four, 5% of sales. For example, this week, GM announced a commitment to go fully electric by 2035, for example, so that's kind of 15 years from now. And 
A couple markets around the globe are exploring bans on internal combustion engines altogether. So the industry seems to be converging on battery electric vehicles as the personal car for the next 10 to 15 years. But some automakers like Toyota are also working on fuel cell electric vehicles, which are powered by compressed hydrogen. So over the next few decades, we'll likely see several solutions for different powertrains and fuel sources to meet the various needs that people have. And for Tesla's dominance, I'd say their dominance continues because they have a really strong technical excellence in terms of battery range and vehicle performance, and they've revolutionized how you buy an electric car. They also started with battery electric vehicles earlier than other manufacturers, so they started with a Roadster in 2008 and the Model S in 2012 when most automakers were maybe just beginning to experiment with electric cars. So everyone else is playing catch-up. But whether or not these catch-up efforts are going to be successful is still unknown because these automakers are moving fast and they're putting a lot of resources against EVs. So it's going to be a really interesting decade in the car business as Tesla faces a wave of new competition from the traditional automakers and other technology companies as well. So there's a rumor that Apple is working on a car, perhaps in collaboration with Hyundai Kia. So... We'll see what happens. It's going to be really interesting. I would say Tesla's big contribution to the electric vehicle market is they made EVs cool. So they were able to convert EVs from being this kind of science project-y type car into a car that people bought because it was cool and not because it was electric. So people who bought Tesla because they were cool, they were buying it almost despite the fact that it was electric. And I think it was that insight or that ability for Tesla to do that that's been a huge boost for the electric vehicle market as a whole. So we'll see where the EV market goes. I think there's a lot of opportunity for disruption from new players, but the existing quote-unquote legacy automakers are not going down without a fight. So that's going to wrap it up for us today. Join us again on another episode of Company Cars, where we'll explore another question about the car business. Of course, it takes a whole village to make a podcast, and so we want to make sure we give due credit to the individuals involved with making this podcast. Our chief technical advisor is Turn It Off and On, and our legal and strategy consultant is Bill Me Moore. Finally, we're assisted by our product planner, Ada Trim, and our finance and insurance manager, Mark Up the Rates. <laughs>